0: Just police training in the world invades. Dun dun dun! I don't think I even need to make sound effects because that pretty much... The title says it all. And I, I was in... Where was I? I was dr- getting a ride somewhere and there was a, a banner someone had, had strung which was like, you know, stop uh, Urban Shield. So folks are really opposed to it. And now we're going to find out why. Okay. The Urban Shield Police Expo has become so popular among police around the world that the sheriff's office no longer has to advertise. So this comes from September 21st, 2015, and they have a they have a photo here of people in police gear, fatigues and helmets and big rifles and little backpack that says police on it, not like the band but the the, the people. And they're coming out of a, a subway station, and they're they got knee pads on, not like, you know, from, for going skating or anything, but just in case, I don't know, they might have to get on their knees. Anywho, let's get into the article. Uh, and the 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 caption for the for the photo is a Singapore police exercise at Urban Shield 2014. This past weekend in Pleasanton, California, a suburb of San Francisco elite police teams from as far away as South Korea, Uruguay, and Jordan converged for the ninth annual Urban Shield Expo and Conference, one of the largest tactical police summits in the world. According to the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, which manages Urban Shield, almost 6,000 volunteers agreed to help SWAT teams coordinate with fire departments, healthcare providers, and other agencies to simulate responses to mass casualty events like attacks against law enforcement mass shootings and earthquakes for 48 hours across five counties in northern california teams of police dressed like soldiers toted assault rifles down suburban streets and burst into buildings as part of a series of tactical exercises by most accounts urban shield is now one of the largest training events for militarized police in the world while proponents say the program prepares governments for disasters. Critics say it's ground zero for police to refine and exchange repressive military tactics. A campaign called Stop Urban Shield Coalition mobilized at least 150 demonstrators to march in protest against the event through downtown Oakland. Our goal is to prevent Urban Shield from continuing and stopping the county from renewing its contract, said Ali Issa. Uh, a. A field organizer with War Resisters League, one of the four groups on the coalition's coordinating committee. For ISSA and the coalition, Urban Shield is the epitome of a militarized security apparatus that maims, tracks, and controls black and brown people. Sergeant JD Nelson, a spokesperson for the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, couldn't understand why people took issue with an event that's meant, in his view, to keep everybody safer in the event of a disaster. Fire and medical teams won't come in without an escort, without an escort. Period, he told the nation. So police have to have some sort of methodology to lead them so you can save lives. But given the history of police relations with their communities, says Mohammed Chek, a spokesperson for the Stop Urban C- Shield Coalition, a militarized police force and the criminalization it engenders are the primary threats against America's non-white underclass. We definitely see Urban Shield as kind of the epitome of the systems we're working against, Shek said. Urban Shield is funded primarily by a Department of Homeland Security grant called the Urban Area Security Initiative, which this year will disperse $587 million for mass disaster security preparations to 28 major cities deemed most at risk. Alameda County will have received $6,358,000 from UASI between November 1, 2014 and February 28, 2016, and $1.7 million of those funds must be spent on Urban Shield. How the money is spent is entirely at the discretion of the Sheriff's Office according to Sean Wilson, a spokesperson for the Alameda County Board of Supervisors. The program was initially created in 2007 by the Alameda County Sheriff as a regional response to simulation for terrorist attacks, but in recent years, teams of police from across the country and globe have shown up to train and observe. Teams from across the United States, including the Jacksonville, Florida County Sheriff's Office, the Miami-Dade Police Department, and the Travis County, Texas Sheriff's Office were joined by counterparts from China and Israel, among others, to study or participate in 58 anti-terror scenarios, although the summit's main event was a coordinated response to a large earthquake. J.D. Nelson said all of the teams learn from each other and leave with new ideas. The press has mostly focused on Urban Shield's weapons and gear expo, where over 100 private companies hawk things like heat-sensing rifle telescopes, very important to have in case there's an earthquake, armored trucks, surveillance drones, and even biometric identification technology for law enforcement. According to Nelson, the expo and trainings have become so popular among police around the world that the sheriff's office no longer has to advertise Urban Shield. Instead, he said, we get people contacting us. Though Alameda County may be the world's new headquarters for militarized law enforcement, it has a longer history of a hotbed as hotbed of activism. The University of California Berkeley is located here, as is Oakland's Merritt College where Huey Newton and Bobby Seale formed the Black Panther Party as students in 1966. Years later, organizer Alicia Garza created the first posters bearing the words Black Lives Matter, the day after George Zimmerman's not guilty verdict. Some of the most intense Black Lives Matter protests in the country have occurred in Oakland, including an action last December during which protesters chained their bodies to the door of the Oakland Police Department. Kamau Walker, a member of Black Lives Matter in the Bay Area, said black organizers there see resistance to urban shield as a way of protecting the welfare of black folks everywhere. Oakland is used as a testing ground for new tactics and new strategies of state repression, she said citing local police use of tear gas against Occupy Oakland as an inspiration for Ferguson police three years later. The visibility of Urban Shield, coupled with heightened consciousness after a year of direct actions, has opened up a lot of community-building space for new people to join veteran organizers from anti-racist and anti-war groups. There's been a long sense here, too, that resisting the police also means resisting the military. According to Sagnik Uh, Salazar, an educator and organizer with the Chicana Moratorium Coalition, which supports the Stop Urban Shield Coalition and educates Latino youth (coughs) on topics including capitalism, race, and the history of the oppressed. Making the connection between police and the military is simple for black and brown communities because we live in communities where we have constant helicopters flying above our neighborhoods, SWAT teams raiding our apartment buildings, shooting projectiles and tear gas in full riot gear, she told the nation. In fact, Salazar said the Chicana Moratorium Coalition began working in tight formation with other community groups at the onset of America's invasion of Iraq. Then, more extreme times followed. The integration of police and immigration agents resulted in even larger numbers of people being deported, and the FBI began entrapping Muslims and Arabs across California. The number of people displaced by gentrification in the Bay Area increased, (coughs) and those who remained were targeted by quality-of-life policing. In response to the related struggles, Salzar says the Chicana Moratorium Coalition engages in cross-community education with Black and Arab groups about each other's specific issues. That coordination has become central to organizing in the Bay Area, said Laura Kaswani, the Executive Director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, which is on the Coordinating Committee for Stop Urban Shield Coalition. She said last year's images from Ferguson moved many in the Bay Area's Arab community to recall Palestine's occupation by Israel, which continued to have a large showing at Urban Shield 2015. These connections are sort of new in terms of understanding the role of policing in the U.S. as an occupying force, which has helped to build solidarity between Arabs and Blacks and other brown communities, she said. That's built on a history of work done between black and brown communities in this country. But this particular moment has potential to heighten solidarity and make material impact. Organizing has made an impact in Alameda County before. Relentless activism pushed the Oakland City Council to kill plans for a citywide mass surveillance program, and former Mayor Gene Kwan pledged the city would not host 2015's Urban Shield following outrage over Ferguson. And this year, a police and prisons abolition group called Critical Resistance has launched the Oakland Power Projects, an initiative to reduce people's reliance on police in emergency situations by widening channels of communication between residents and health caregivers. The first project, which will develop an anti-policing health workers cohort made up of doctors, nurses, healers, and counselors, begins this weekend. Mohammed Chek, spokesperson for the abolitionist group as well as Stop Urban Shield Coalition, sees the police summit as a way for the state to conflate health service provision and military-style tactics in a way where receiving health care is now inseparable from being confronted with an M16 rifle. One of the coalition's goals, he said, was to make these connections between what's happening now just in the Bay Area, but also other countries and places across the world, including the Middle East and Latin America. Like a mirror image, Urban Shield is also building coordination among law enforcement, albeit one overseen by spies. One of the main functions of this year's Urban Shield was to enhance intelligence sharing between users of two different emergency management systems, which allow police and other first responders to monitor and issue alerts for various public incidents, including mass shootings, natural disasters, and unwieldy protests. But whatever the incident, such coordination is meant to command geographical space like an army with total situational awareness the same phrase used by police and the department of homeland security to justify to justify surveillance of black lives matter protests across the country (coughs) the campaign to stop urban shield didn't end after last weekend said ali Issa, having succeeded in drawing enough attention that it's become an international scandal to many he and many of, urban, of Stop Urban Shield are hopeful that they can kick the event out of Oakland and see it abolished entirely. This year, I feel like it's definitely broader than it used to be in terms of national attention and groups locally here, especially connecting to Black Lives Matter with other existing movements, Issa said. It's just such a clear example of escalating police force, and it's becoming a clear target for many different struggles at the same time. Sergeant J.D. Nelson from the Sheriff's Office had an entirely different opinion. It's a great program, and every year it gets better than the year before, he said. He predicts a bright future for Urban Shield and militarized police in a world teeming with catastrophe, which he seems to see everywhere. For those who said they didn't want Urban Shield in Oakland this year, he said, when we were down there last year, it was, a crime, it was crime-free. Now they had a guy shot next to, ho- next to the hotel that hosted last year's summit. Yeah, put a thousand police in an area, and the bad guys tend to stay clear. Putting a 1,000 police on a city block to prevent random crime may sound like a police state, but Nelson doesn't see it that way. To him, Urban Shield got the finest seal of approval this year when United States Secretary of Homeland Security Jeb Johnson traveled to Pleasanton to praise the program. If one of Obama's cabinet members comes to California to speak to us, they're pretty happy with what we do. But the Stop Urban Shield Coalition is aiming much higher than a single summit. Mohamed Chek said they wouldn't stop until they've ended the culture and infrastructure that sustains urban shield. It would be a victory when urban shield doesn't happen anywhere anymore, but goes further than that. It's connecting to longer struggles against policing and for self determination. So whether that comes from organizing against the prison industrial complex or police's war on black people in this country or migrant communities and the militarization of the border, they are all very much related in this struggle. Whew. So, I feel like that's quite a lot to think about, and it's interesting just to see the mirroring. You know, the organizing that's coming on on both ends, and I think it's great that folks are kind of coming together to see how uh, multiple people, many, many, many people and groups are being oppressed by you know the militarized police and in the systems. And I love the idea of the 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 cohort of the the healthcare workers kind of coming together because at the end of the day that's what you want when something goes down ideally you want healthcare workers and nurses and counselors and folks not so much people with, with, with guns um, no matter what's happening uh, folks who can come by and help uh, that would make me feel a lot more safe and I think that would make a lot of other folks feel a lot more safe and also just noting the, uh, the use of the word uh, or even the the spokesperson who was talking about the bad guys even viewing you know viewing people as bad guys how that's not really that's pretty limiting i think uh so um yeah i've got a couple different things going on here so i'm moving around the station a little bit i'm gonna play another song and then we'll be back with some more um with some more stories yes that's it so start off with Bruce Springsteen, and then we're going to hear some Joan Jett, because Joan Jett makes me pretty happy, and hopefully makes you happy as well. So I think everyone knows this song. Uh, ah, I'm going to get some water, and then we'll be back with some more more news.
1: and take and i
0: Joan Jett, of course, with I Love Rock and Roll, and one can't help but think of Word Owl's I Love Rocky Road. Uh, I'm a big Word Owl fan, and that was great. So going into, here's a segue. Well, the segue as uh, similar to the the previous story, which is about kind of soldiers and the military, military, what's the mil- militarization, and the military, and uh, how folks behave sometimes in those situations, and uh, ugh. Uh, Yeah. So two things. One is that I saw um, there's there's been plenty of stories about vets, like how the suicide rates is quite high among veterans. And I was reading an article online. It was in a forum and someone posted a video of like training and it like captured it from the very moment uh, people get off the bus and then they have to stand in line and follow orders. And the moment like they're getting off the bus, they're just being screamed at and like, go faster, faster, faster. And I was just thinking if I was in that situation and I can't imagine being in that situation because I don't don't see myself in that place for a variety of reasons. um, I I wouldn't have even gotten off the bus, let alone like the whole video was maybe at least half an hour and I, I didn't make it that far in the video, but there was just constant do things this way and like just screaming and belittling and really like knocking people down. And I just can't imagine doing very well in that situation at all. I wouldn't have even gotten off the bus. The video would have. I would have just been like, nope, I, this is not for me. Um, so that was one thing I was thinking about with the with the military, um, just for my own how I would do in that or not do in that. And then also I met someone recently who was doing some work with v, the v, in the VA, and something that they were talking about was uh, moral injury, which is something that psychologists I guess work on where it's not. Of course, not physical injury, but moral inju- injury where um, someone ends up killing someone or, or doing something that's kind of against their own morals and how they they deal with that. And moral injury, uh, something to think about a lot and uh, something that's probably you know, with with, with physical, we, you know, we live in the material, material, we live in the material world, as our friend Madonna talks about. And now there's th- some things are easy to see in terms of injury, um, physical injuries. And then when you think about moral injury, it's something that one doesn't necessarily see and how many folks kind of deal with that on a daily basis, but people don't really talk about it. And it's it's kind of hard to maybe um, understand if it's in ex- it's based on experience. So I thought that was really interesting. I've been thinking about that a lot. So this one, ooh. so going into this story, um, it's kind of late to the last story, and this is, the title is uh, U.S. soldiers forced to retire after refusing orders to ignore children being raped by police officers. So this comes from uh, Counter Current News, and the article was written by M. David and M. A. Hussein. and again, this is at countercurrentnews.com okay and this came out September 23rd 2015 the top article the photo is a t- top photo in the article is a soldier with four children um, behind them the caption says imagine you witness child sexual abuse while on the on the job but your boss told you not to do anything to stop it uh, now imagine that your boss was the United States government so trigger warning um, oh, okay getting into the story in his last phone call, he told his father about what, he had, what had been happening in southern Afghanistan. He said he could hear Afghan police officers raping and sexually abusing boys brought to the base. At night, we can hear them screaming, but we're not allowed to do anything about it, the Marine's father, Gregory Buckley Sr., said his son told him before being shot and killed at the base. My son said that his officers told him to look the other way because it's their culture, he continued. His son told him before his death in uh, 2012 that the police called their abuse uh, "bacha bazi, which literally means boy play. U.S. soldiers and Marines have been directly instructed by their commanding officers and ultimately the U.S. government not to intervene. The reason we were here is because we heard the terrible things the Taliban were doing to people How they were taking away human rights, Dan Quinn, a former special forces captain said. Quinn actually physically beat up an American-backed militia commander after he found out he was keeping a boy chained to his bed, using him as a sex slave. But we were putting people into power who would do things that were worse than than the Taliban did. That was something village elders voiced to me. The New York Times reports that the policy of instructing soldiers to ignore child sexual abuse by their Afghan allies is coming under new scrutiny, particularly as it emerges that service members like Captain Quinn have faced discipline, even career ruin, for disobeying it. The U.S. Army actually fired Captain Quinn for saving the child. He was relieved of his command and sent home from Afghanistan, basically forced to leave the military. Uh, on his own since stateside. Now, four years later, the Times reports that the military is also trying to forcibly retire Sergeant First Class Charles Martland. Martland is a Special Forces member who helped Captain Quinn free the child and beat up the commander. The Army contends that Martland and others should have looked the other way, a contention that I believe is nonsense, Representative Duncan Hunter, a California Republican, wrote. To the Pentagon's Inspector General last week. For their part, the U.S. Army says it cannot comment because of the Privacy Act. The Times asked about the American military policy to the spokesman for the American command in Afghanistan, Colonel Brian Tribus. Tribus wrote back in an email, generally allegations of child sexual abuse by Afghan military or police personnel would be a matter of domestic Afghan criminal law. But what about when the Afghan police are the ones doing the abuse? He continued, saying that there would be no express requirement that the U.S. military personnel in Afghan f- in Afghanistan report it. The bigger picture was fighting the Taliban, one anonymous former Marine Lance Corporal said to the Times, it wasn't to stop molestation. And I'm going to read here. Uh, oh, whew, um uh, another piece included in the article by the summer of 2011 captain quinn and sergeant mortland both green berets on their second tour in northern Kunduz province began to receive dire complaints about the afghan local police units they were training and supporting first they were told one of the militia commanders raped a 14 or 15 year old girl whom he had whom he had spotted working in the fields Captain Quinn informed the provincial police chief, who soon levied punishment. He got one day in jail, and then she was forced to marry him, Mr. Quinn said. When he asked a superior officer what more he could do, (coughs) he was told that he had done well to bring it up with local officers, with local officials, but that there was nothing else to be done. We're being praised for doing the right thing, and the guy just got away with raping a 14-year-old girl, Mr. Quinn said. Over time, village elders began to grow increasingly angry at the abusive behavior of the US-backed Afghan police. In September 2011, an Afghan woman, visibly bruised, showed up at an American base with her son, who was limping. One of the Afghan police commanders in the area, Abdul Rahman, had abducted the boy and forced him to become a sex slave, chained to his bed, the woman explained. When she sought her son's return, she herself was beaten. Her son had eventually been released, but she was afraid it would happen again, she told the American on the base. <coughs> she explained that because her son was such a good looking kid, he was a status symbol, coveted by local commanders, recalled Mr. Quinn, who did not speak to the woman directly, but was told about her visit when he returned to the base from a mission later that day. That's when Captain Quinn called Abdul Rahman to confront him about the tape. The police commander admitted everything, but said it was not a big deal. Quinn said, you are held to a higher standard if you are working with U.S. forces and people expect more of you, but the police commander just laughed. I picked him up and threw him onto the ground, Quinn recalled, and that's when Sergeant Martlin joined. I did this to make sure the message was understood that if he went back to the boy, that it was not going to be tolerated. Sergeant Martlin wrote in a letter that he and Mr. Quinn felt that morally we could no longer stand by and allow the US-backed Afghan police to commit atrocities now the father of Lance Corporal Buckley is filling is filing a lawsuit because he believes the policy of looking away from sexual abuse actually was a factor in his sons being killed he is suing for the release of information regarding the circumstances of his son's killing help break the silence and spread the word about these abuse practices by US-backed police and again this article is on countercurrentnews.com dot com and was written by M David and M A Hussein. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna take uh, a break, put on a little bit more music, uh, and then we'll be back with some more stories. I don't have much to anything to add to that really, but just it one can see where it with with the first story why folks there's multiple reasons to be opposed to militarized police and uh, around the world and uh, abuse of power at the the very least all (laughs) right that was living color with fight the fight. Oh, how about some more news and there will be some uplifting stories coming up, but we're going to get to some of the uh, yeah, you know what? It is what it is. And uh, I'm going to keep on going through it. So I got a few more stories. We do have some uplifting ones coming up. And this one is something I talk about quite a bit on the show and that's uh mass incarceration and how shitty it is and that's not even Oh. There's many reasons why it's terrible, and here's yet another and there's uh, uh so uh this article comes from the Sacramento Bee, and I found this article from uh the Ella Baker Center for Human rights and they they do a lot of great work, so I'm gonna go into this, and a lot of this uh, I'm sure many folks are aware of, but if not, now people will know so this is from the Sacramento Bee. Families also pay the high price of imprisonment. And this was written on September 21st, 2015, and it was written by Tana Vargas Edmund. The top of the article is a photo of a person uh... wearing a, a prison uniform, and the caption is A and b- being hugged. uh... <sighs> prisoner embraces family members at Folsom State Prison during a visit organized by a nonprofit program in 2011. A new study details the cost to loved ones of keeping in touch with inmates. And the photos taken by Autumn Cruz. All right, again, this is from the Sacramento Bee. <clears throat> and this was written by Taina Vargas Edmund. And Taina writes, I'd been stranded on the side of the mountain highway for more than two hours before anyone stopped to help me. The snow kept falling heavily. I was soaked to the bone, and my numb hands were unable to secure the snow chains on my tires. I was terrified of driving in the snow through the twists and turns of the Sierra. I hated taking time off work, paying for a motel, and the five-hour drive in my 12-year-old car with a broken heater. But it was the only way I could see my husband since his arrest. When you have an incarcerated loved one, you face your own kind of imprisonment. You are confined to paying exorbitant costs for phone calls, legal fees, food packages, and travel for visits. You are sentenced to the same number of years as the one you love. Only your prison term is served in decisions made between paying your bills and maintaining the relationship. Your life becomes defined by what you are willing to sacrifice to maintain contact. That was what resonated with me when I read the report released last week and led by the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Forward together and research action design. My heart ached with every struggle to pay for food, housing and utilities so families could hold their loved ones close. The system manipulates our desperation and fear. Despite overwhelming evidence that shows that prisoners who maintain contact with their families are less likely to return to prison, the burden of maintaining strong relationships is placed on their families and most often women of color like me when my partner Richard was arrested in Los Angeles in September 2011 I was a second year grad student in New Jersey living on student loans and doing unpaid internships I barely had enough money for my own food and housing let alone the six hundred to seven hundred dollars a month for the phone calls to the Los Angeles County Jail or the monthly flights to wait for three hours to visit him behind a tiny barred glass window for 30 minutes When I moved back to California, Richard was transferred to the California Correctional Center in Susanville, 250 miles away from my home, and only accessible through the snowy Sierra. Each visit cost me between $250 and $300, and I visited him twice a month. The report found that more than one in three families go into debt to pay for phone calls and visits alone. I was fortunate enough to be able to visit Richard without losing housing or going into debt, but I was not able to save any money during the first few years of his incarceration. With my partner locked in a cage and legally barred from earning an income, I wondered, how does any family survive this way? The answer is that we're not meant to. Prison separates families and devastates communities under the guise of protecting public safety. The report reveals that strong families play the most significant role in helping their loved ones secure housing, employment, and emotional support that ensures they do not return to prison, yet the system explicitly severs those connections. This punitive approach to justice does not make any of us safer. It buries families deeper in debt and desperation, condemning future generations to poverty, trauma, and an increased likelihood for incarceration themselves. We need sentencing reform and community-based alternatives to incarceration that keep our loved ones close to home. We need, we need our elected officials to prioritize and reinvest in families in every prison reform measure they propose. Richard still has four and a half years of his sentence to go. I still have four and a half years of financial and other sacrifices to make. Our story is like that of too many families. <coughs> and it says that uh, Tina. Um, Vargas Edmund is the state advocate for the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland and again you can find this article um, from on the sac- in the Sacramento Bee and it came out on September 21st <sighs> so I think reading uh, firsthand accounts of this really drives the point home and I'm curious to, to take a look at the report and you know one can read statistics and see how horrible that is it was similar to when you know i read the uh, echoes on homeless the statistics here in san francisco about how there's the intense criminalization of the poor here and how it makes things worse and then when one reads a first-hand account you can really um, just hearing what people go through and how this is just one of so many people and there's like millions (laughs) of people in in jail but in this country it's ridiculous so anything that can be done to I would say abolish prisons uh, to work on that uh, would help out so many people. And again, it's, you know, the criminalization and the punishment makes things that much worse. And that goes into the, you know, the first couple stories that we read about just the policing and uh, people in positions of power, you know, abusing their authority and making things worse for absolutely everybody. And then, uh, folks even folks who have the opportunity to speak out about it are threatened or or not heard. So, ugh. That's yeah. When I started doing the the show, I definitely would get really angry and by some point in the show almost uh by, you know, I would, would check to see in the 2 hours at what point did I just start either yelling or feeling so frustrated I couldn't finish the story, Uh, still would manage a a way to finish it. Uh, And now I feel with going through this and really wanting to read it and understand it and take it in and share it, it's more of a sadness. There's still that frustration and that anger there and there's more of a, a sadness that this is the world that we've been brought into. You know, prisons have existed uh, they didn't always exist, but certainly they existed before anyone who's who's been living on this planet right now, uh, how to dismantle systems that have been here since before we were born and that are so ingrained in the society. And thankfully, there are folks moving to at least abolish private prisons and youth detention centers, so the work is being done. It just feels uh, like an uphill battle that these systems are in place and all the harm that they do. So, yeah, feeling, uh, a lot of sadness, uh, and wanting to stay as positive as possible and knowing that (sighs) work at least is being done and more attention is being paid to it. And, uh, that's all, that's at least one, one thing to, to remember. So yeah, feeling, oof, all right. So there's some more stories, of course. I'm going to go into, there's a somewhat of an uplifting story, which is, you know, it's like shit happens and then people get held accountable. So that's a positive thing. So I'm going to go into this and then I'll take another break. This comes from Yahoo. I, you know, Yahoo News. All right, I'll take it. And uh, it's I try definitely to talk as much about transgender issues as I'm able to. Again, it hits super close to home. I mean, a lot of these things hit very close to home and there's multiple, it's people being policed based on their bodies and that happens to <laughs> so many people and uh, this also has to do with prison so found this story and thought it would be worth sharing because at least it's someone being held accountable for their misbehavior misbehavior is um, putting it mildly abuse so this comes from uh, Reuters and it was through Yahoo News and it was written by John Clark and this came out yesterday uh, transgender inmate win suit against Maryland police officials, Washington, a transgender inmate who says guards called her a trigger warning. I should just do a trigger warning before the entire show. Pretty much. I should do it before every story, most stories. And then also before, um, all the stories. Oh, deep breath in, deep breath out. All right. A transgender inmate who says guards called her an animal and encouraged her to kill herself has won a legal battle against Maryland police, uh, prison officials in the first successful lawsuit of its kind against a U.S. correctional facility, her at- attorney said on Thursday. In a decision that led Maryland prisons to adopt new policies about transgender inmates, administrative law judge Denise Schaefer ruled in favor of Sandy Brown's claim that prison officials at Pat... Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland, failed to comply with national standards for the protection of inmates from sexual abuse, according to court documents. Brown was serving a five-year sentence for assault when in 2014, she said she was placed in solitary confinement 24 hours a day for 66 days at Patuxent after a routine mental health screening, according to court records. She said guards watched her shower and encouraged her to commit suicide. They didn't see me for the human being I am, Brown, 40, said in a statement on Thursday. They treated me like a circus act. They gawked, pointed, made fun of me, and tried to break my spirit. The federal law, known as the Prison Rape Elimination Act, requires prisons to have clear policies and mandatory training for corrections officers on the treatment of transgender inmates. Schaefer found that the guards subjected Brown to sexual abuse through voyeurism, adding, federal guidelines were not followed in her housing, and she was denied access to rec- recreational activities. Schaefer ruled the prison should establish new transgender inmate policies, including uh, including for strip searches, housing, and guard interactions. Schaefer also ordered the prison to pay Brown $5,000 in res- restitution for denying her recreational activities. Brown filed the complaint in April, seeking $75,000 in damages suffered through post-traumatic stress disorder. Schaefer made the ruling in May. The Maryland Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services formally adopted the judge's ruling earlier this month, requiring prisons to adopt the new transgender policies and training. Brown's attorney, Rebecca Erlbeck, said the case was the first in the country in which a transgender person successfully won a legal battle against prison officials for Prison Rape Elimination Act violations. We believe this case creates a framework for enforcing the national standards that transgender people who are incarcerated in other states and their advocates can follow to help to ensure that others do not have to endure the pain and trauma Ms. Brown experienced, Earl Beck said. (sighs) So uh another reason i'm for the abolishment of prisons altogether They're uh i don't have anything to even add to that um and again it's horrible abuses happen and then it's uh, then there's like a, a loss you know a lawsuit which doesn't undo any of the damage that was done and will at least um make way for other folks who experience the same thing to not have to go through it one would hope but again if we didn't have prisons in the first place there wouldn't be any need for any of this Uh, because people would not be in prison they would not be abused by the guards so oh goodness Uh, with that um, I'm gonna have another music break and uh, I guess the music I have I try to have a lot of more political music a lot of the time and uh ugh, today i've got some rock music i found you know i found a little bit here here and there to uh try to to cleanse the palate and the, the original tagline for our show was the news is depressing and sometimes we play music and the news is almost always depressing and we do we definitely always play music and it's not in a way to kind of contradict uh the the news stories it's definitely a to take to take a break from it a little bit and to remember there is beauty in the world and there are people fighting the good fight so why not play some pete Seeger um and this song pretty much says it all and uh the more and more you know of course the world is complex and everything is interconnected and i don't necessarily believe that there's good and bad i believe there's maybe or people at least i feel i feel that like there are some actions that are not good certainly um, but when it comes down to it when you have folks committing atrocities uh it you, one has to take action against it and stand up against it <coughs> and, and at, uh when we hear about i don't know police officers uh using tear gas against protesters and prison guards abusing people and people being sent to prison and the impact it has on their families it doesn't it shouldn't be even a question as to which side that you're on so with that here's some beat singer
2: which side are you on boys which side battles won tell me which side are Come in here and dwell. Tell me which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me which side are you on, boys? Which side are you
0: on? Yeah, that's, of course, Pete Seeger. And, oh, yeah, the, of course, the which side are you on can be One can see that in many, many regards. Uh, So getting back into it, got a few more news stories and some more music, and then we'll be wrapping up a little bit early today. Uh, So this is some positive, yeah, it's positive news. It's protesters doing good protesting, uh, I would say. And uh, found out about the story a few days ago. They had a a live stream, uh, which is, of course, no longer up because it was a live stream. But uh, this came from uh, not one more uh, not one more deportation.com breaking activists locked down outside Tacoma detention center so there are folks doing some good work all right uh, diverse coalition of activists and the, the caption for the video is uh, diverse coalition of activists risk arrest to stop immigration deportations call for immediate end to detentions community members locked down for what has become a global human rights issue Tacoma, September 21, 2015. uh, Northwest Detention Center Resistance Coalition members locked down to protest deportations at the private facility. Protesting the criminalization and scapegoating of immigrants, the protest highlights the moral injustice of privately run-for-profit detention centers and their collaboration with local police departments, creating a road to detention, and call for an end to all immigrant deportations and detentions. Ending immigrant deportations is absolutely an environmental issue," said Colonel, Colonel Green, executive. I'm um, sorry," said Gott Green, executive director. Uh, Jill Mang- Mangaliman, uh, speaking from one of the road blockades, uh, speaking from one of the road blockades. Jill added, "I'm willing to be out here today because climate change is resulting in worsening drought and superstorm conditions, which displace millions across the globe." These climate refugees will number 200 million by by 2050. World leaders and communities across the U.S. need to end these unjust deportations and commit to policies that stop climate change. Jill is one of more than 20 people who had chained themselves together in metal and plastic containers that covered their arms. These lockboxes make it difficult for law enforcement authorities to separate and arrest the protesters. Together, these locked teams blocked the three roadways leading from the detention center. Protesters also came to the action to offer moral support to the human blockade. Members of the trans and or women's action camp carried a sign protesting ICE's controversial practice of placing transgender detainees in solitary confinement. While transgender women only make up one out of 500 detained immigrants in the country, they make up an alarming one out of every five confirmed sexual assaults in immigration detention. Undocumented immigrant and parent Maru Mora Villalpando, Villalpando was also a part of the human chain, along with her U.S.-born daughter, Josefina Mora. She, like many of her fellow protesters, sees the day's goal as not only to prevent the day's immigrant deportations, but also to call attention to the local lockup quota a contractual provision that obligates immigration and customs enforcement ICE to pay for a minimum of 800 immigration detention beds daily to the GEO Group, the private prison corporation that runs the facility. The quota, referred to in contracts as guaranteed minimum, as guaranteed minimums, requires payment to private contractors whether beds are filled or not and ICE faces considerable pressure to keep the beds at the detention center full. The government could close these detention centers today and end the practice of corporations profiting from imprisoning human beings, ensure all its residents have access to quality food and healthy homes, and change its international policies to create fair trade for people and the planet. People should not be forced to migrate, and those already here should be allowed to remain with their families and communities," said Maru from the Locked Line. Participants of the protest include Rising Tide Seattle, the Raging Grannies, and other groups fighting for climate justice, economic justice, reproductive justice, worker rights, and more. Uh, And the statement below... The nations that caused this crisis have a basic obligation to welcome migrants with open arms. We must create a world where safety and justice are more important than arbitrary borders. If we can't find a way to welcome and support migration in a rapidly warming world, dystopia awaits us. In the climate-disrupted world, we will inherit a militarized border and abusive gulag system can only grow into an even more violent police state so again um one can find this um from hashtag uh hashtag not one more and online at not one more and this article uh came out uh september twenty first so moving on have a uh, another story and this kind of goes into what we're talking about a little bit before and uh f- this is gonna be more about protests and this also comes from counter current news. And from September 20th, families of police brutality victims and protesters united march for justice sweeps the streets. In Cincinnati, Ohio, demonstrators marched through the streets Saturday evening calling for justice for the family of Sam Debose, John Crawford, Tamir Rice, and Samantha Ramsey. All four of these victims of police brutality and murder were killed by the o- in the Ohio area. Samantha was killed just over the state lines with Kentucky. Tamir, a 12-year-old boy, was shot within a mere second of a police officer. Um, within a mere second, of a police officer pulled up to a Cleveland park where he was playing with a toy BB gun. John was also gunned down while holding a BB gun that he picked up off the shelf of a Beaver Creek Walmart. Sam was killed simply because a University of Cincinnati police officer thought he might drive away. The protesters in Saturday's march said that none of these victims should ever have been killed. A part of me is gone, a part of me is missing, and I'm still trying to figure out how to get it back, Kimberly Thomas, a friend of Sam DeBose said. They need to review the University of Cincinnati police force, their patterns, their policies, their their practices, their policies regarding such instances such as police stops. Demonstrators marched from UC's campus police department to Rice Street where Debose was murdered by Officer Ray Tanzing. Tanzing is now free on bail which was was set unusually low for someone facing such serious charges. Once they returned uh, they marched to the Clifton Business District. As soon as they did the Cleveland the Cincinnati police swarmed them arresting them for legally walking in the street and arresting journalists who filmed the unlawful arrests. Walking in the street is not itself a crime if walking on the sidewalk is impractical, as long as one is not blocking traffic. As evidenced by numerous videos of the protest, police cars were still driving through the crowd with no obstruction. Several protesters were filmed asking police which side of the one-way street they would like them to walk on one officer instructed that it should be left uh, that it should be the left side and says they also link a video here the Ohio Revised Code 4511 uh, section on pedestrian walking in roadway explains that if there is a sidewalk pedestrians should utilize it if its use is practicable practicable is defined as able to be done or put into practice successfully but in the business district by the University of Cincinnati, a large group of people walking on the sidewalk is anything but practicable, and that's in quotation marks, when there were so many people on the sidewalks shopping. Ironically, the police charged peaceful po- protesters with obstruction of business, proving that they are only really here to serve the profits of business rather than honoring the constitutional right of freedom of speech and assembly. The protesters were in fact trying not to obstruct business by walking at a fast pace in the streets, in compliance with the Ohio Revised Code. Police however tried to invent new laws on the fly, even telling journalists and protesters that they were not allowed to cross the streets on crosswalks, and must remain on whatever sidewalk they were on. In the video below, uh, two journalists and two additional protesters are being arrested. A journalist from the countercurrent news who was at the protest immediately posted bail for them as soon as they were processed at the Cincinnati Justice Center and justice is in quotation marks. Uh, Awakened Cincinnati and hashtag op John Crawford organizers tell us that the police have just stirred up a hornet's nest and that they should expect us next week. The same place, same time. Stay tuned. We'll keep you posted on what's next for the Cincinnati police. The article was written by M. David, and the image was by Justin. I'm sorry, Jordan Freshour, one of the journalists arrested for filming the police and taking these and other pictures of the protest. Again, you can find that at countercurrentnews.com. Huh. So, news of protesters. And uh, next, we're gonna play some music, and then we'll be back with some positive news as promised. Uh, there is positive news. It comes in in the way of science and cannabis, which helps a lot of people and is still criminalized in parts of the world and in this country. And thankfully, uh, things are moving forward. However, not quite fast enough, especially if folks are still imprisoned for it. So we'll be back with that story. And right now we're going to play a song um, from friend of mine, friend of the show who's been on before. It was a great new album called Morning to the Moonlight and that's uh, Monica McIntyre. This song is called uh, I'll Fly Away.
3: So glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away To a home on God's celestial shore I'll fly, I'll, fly I'll fly away 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 When the shine Like a bird from prison bars have flown cold iron shackles on my feet
0: Up as promised, there are some positive news stories. The first couple are going to be about marijuana and how great it is, health benefits, because uh, a lot of us know how great it is. And uh, following that, there'll be a story about solar power, which is great and thankfully a uh, little bit long overdue. But it's coming to a city near you, especially if you live in Burlington, Vermont, which I don't, but some people do. So that's good, and hopefully, you know, it starts someplace; it, it will spread so that's good news so the first story is a pretty brief it's a very brief article and then i'll get into a longer some more facts about cannabis and this comes from a website that is called marijuana-news.co and that title marijuana helps heal broken bones and even makes them stronger scientists discover and if you know anything about cannabis you know that there's been a lot of research on it and people have tried to do research on it but a lot of powers that be have kind of try to to make scientists, ref, you know, they there's been a lot of pushback because uh people profit off putting people in prison for it and uh also other pharmaceutical companies and other industries such as the prison industrial complex, such as alcohol, such as tobacco, a lot of other industries uh, have benefited from the fact that cannabis has been illegal in a lot of places. So there's been a lot of repression based on the, you know, for the scientists who are actually doing research on uh Uh, cannabinoids and THC and how it can help people so here's some studies that actually made it out which is wonderful marijuana helps heal broken bones and even makes them stronger scientists discover and this comes out September 21st 2015 Uh, a marijuana chemical known as cannabinoid cannabidiol which is CBDs, which a lot of us now hear about, uh, helps fractures heal faster and even make bones stronger than they were before. According to a study conducted by researchers from Tel Aviv University and Hebrew University and published in the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research, CBD has no psychotropic effects. We found that CBD alone makes bones stronger during healing, enhancing the maturation of the collagenous matrix, which provides the basis for new... Mineralization of bone tissue. So there you have it. Uh, CBDs, CBD uh, it can help. So that's very brief, <laughs> very brief article, but uh, good to good to know that. And then next we have uh, THC, which is separate from CBDs, and this comes from LeafScience.com. Seven proven medical benefits of THC. Decades of research point to a variety of medical uses for this unique compound. THC or tetrahydrocannabinol is the most recognized ingredient in cannabis. It is best known for causing the high that you get from using marijuana. As a result, THC has also caused the most controversy surrounding the plant's medical use, which many health professionals citing the high as a drawback. However, while compounds like cannabidiol, CBD, have started to gain favor due to their lack of psychoactivity Decades of research have revealed a number of medical benefits unique to THC. Here is a list of seven of them. One, pain relief, which we all need, pain relief. One of the most common uses of medical marijuana is for pain relief. And as it turns out, THC is the ingredient in marijuana responsible for its pain relieving effects. Studies show that THC activates pathways in the central nervous system which work to block pain signals from being sent to the brain. Likewise, cannabis has been shown to be especially effective against neuropathic pain or nerve related pain. Number 2, PTSD. Post Traumatic Stress Disorder, PTSD, is another common reason to use medical marijuana. Interestingly, the high from THC is also associated with temporary impairments of memory. While this may seem as a drawback for some marijuana users, impaired memory is often therapeutic for those who struggle to forget painful memories, such as patients who suffer from PTSD. Recent studies confirm that oral doses of THC can help relieve a variety of PTSD-related symptoms including flashbacks, agitation, and nightmares. Next, number three, nausea and vomiting. THC has been available in pill form for treating nausea and vomiting in cancer patients since the 1980s. Marinol, a pill containing synthetic THC, was the first THC-based medication to be approved by the FDA for this purpose. Since then, other THC pills have been developed and prescribed to patients undergoing chemotherapy, including a pill called Sesamet. Next, a lot of us know about this one, number four, Appetite Stimulant. Along with its ability to reduce nausea, THC is known to work as a powerful appetite stimulant in both healthy and sick individuals. Similarly, uh, Marinol and Sesamet are regularly prescribed to boost appetite in patients with cancer and HIV-associated wasting syndrome. A number of studies conducted with Marinol suggest that THC can also stimulate weight gain in anorexia. Hmm. Number five, I didn't know about this one, asthma. Treating asthma may not seem like an obvious use for medical marijuana, but as it turns out, THC's ability to improve breathing in asthmatics is supported by research dating back to the 1970s. Following trials that showed smoking marijuana could help calm asthma attacks, scientists tried and failed to develop an inhaler that could deliver THC. While the THC inhaler idea was ultimately abandoned, some say modern-day vaporizers might be the solution. Hmm, number six, glaucoma. Another benefit of THC recognized early on was its potential to relieve eye pressure in patients with glaucoma. Likewise, after studies in the 1970s showed that smoking marijuana could reduce symptoms in glaucoma sufferers, scientists tried and failed again to develop a way to administer THC in eye drops. Hmm. The idea proved too complicated due to the fact that THC is not soluble in water. While some glaucoma patients rely on medical marijuana to this day, the American Glaucoma Society maintains it, the position that its effects are too short lived, lasting three to four hours, to be considered a viable treatment option. And number seven, which we'd, a lot of us know certainly, is a sleep aid. Uh, many are aware of the sleep inducing effects of marijuana, and research shows that THC is largely responsible. In fact, trials conducted in the 1970s found that oral doses of THC helped both healthy individuals and insomniacs fall asleep faster. Interestingly, more recent studies suggest THC may also improve nighttime breathing and reduce sleep interruptions in those who suffer from a common disorder known as sleep apnea. Researchers are currently working to develop a THC based medicine for treating the condition. And there you have it. So, I'm actually going to find a song, I don't know if we have it here, which will be a, a great placeholder after this, uh, um, that I think we'll, uh, a lot of folks will enjoy. And it has to do with, our, with uh, what we've been talking about here, with the last two stories. It's great to have good segues and music that kind of corresponds to uh, what, we're, what we've been talking about here. So this may take a moment, so I will continue talking. Uh, San Francisco, what's going on here? I uh, no, no. know what else to really report here. Uh, it's <sighs> the election's coming up on November 3rd. And last week we had um, we had uh, Amy Farrah Weiss and Francisco Herrera and broke ass Stewart, a.k.a. Stuart Shish, uh, Shuffman here on the show. And that was great. And folks, it's still time. You can get you can be eligible to vote. So fill out your voter registration. You can take care of that. And uh, that would be wonderful, and yeah, you can do that because we really need we really need for folks to get Ed Lee out of office. He I, oh my gosh, I saw him. I, I try not to watch the news, the mainstream news. It's like ugh, pretty biased. And he was interviewed about something, and he was oh yes, there was a video that was about the San Francisco oh yes, San Francisco Police Department. So they they're, they're kind of getting butt hurt because. There's a lot of anti-police feelings and sentiments around the city, which happens when people get killed in prison and or unfairly arrested, and there's criminalization of the poor. That's just a natural. People are gonna get upset about it. So the police started making. They made like these radio advertisements to defend themselves. And so Ed Lee was interviewed about it, and they asked Ed Lee, Mayor Ed Lee, if he thought that the racial profiling was a problem here, and he said it wasn't. And I was like, All right, you need to get out of office immediately. So that's just my my stance on it, ugh, so that was, ugh, that was one thing that that happened, and hopefully we can get him uh, out of office, so, oh no, that's one thing I hate, is uh, advertisements, I'm not a fan of advertisements, they seem to be everywhere, they're ubiquitous, and uh, so I'm not going to play the advertisements, that's coming on before this, the song I'm playing, (sighs) ugh, But you know that's what we have. So yes, November third is the election, and there's also some folks. Um, I went to the Tenderloin Votes, which is an organization that meets on Thursday afternoons, and um, they're trying to get folks out to, to vote because the Tenderloin has a pretty low voting uh, record. Uh, and you can, if you're if you're homeless, you don't have a permanent address, you can use an intersection uh, when they say the address, and you can also go to City Hall and register there. So that's something. Uh, worth sharing. That's really important. So just thought I would share that. So here, of course, is a song that I was talking about before, and it's a lot of people's favorites. So here we go. that was uh, I smoke two joints by the Toys, and that's T-O-Y-E-S. I, I don't smoke two joints. That's That would be a lot for me. Maybe I have a couple hits. Uh, I don't do it in the morning, uh, usually. Uh, but for folks who do, and it helps them, more power to you. So it's nice to have an anthem, right? And I think a lot of that comes from just the criminalization that's happened and the just the disrespect uh, when folks, especially folks using it for medicine, how dare you shame someone and lock people up for it? And this, of course, you know, would you rather smoke to joints or do homework? Uh, you know, I think homework can be helpful, but I understand. Anyway, thought that would be good to, to play. So we got two more stories coming up, and they're they're good. Uh, you know, the stories are good. So the first one is what I'd mentioned before, and that's going into the science stuff. And this is Burlington, Vermont becomes first U.S. city to run 100% renewable electricity. How hard could that be? I don't know much about science so maybe it is difficult but probably not as difficult as i bet that there's a lot of like pg and e type uh you know the big energy companies don't want it to happen that's what i think is the biggest obstacle it's probably not that difficult but it's like with cannabis you know people who profit uh who make profit off keeping something illegal or or inaccessible inaccessible uh, are gonna stand in the way of things that actually help people which is a general theme here on the show so we're gonna talk about folks kind of pushing beyond that so this is from EcoWatch at ecowatch.com and the article was written by Anastasia pancios Burlington, Vermont becomes first US city to run 100% renewable electricity. Awesome. Let's find out how. Burlington, Vermont is that state's largest city with a population of 42,000 people. It describes itself as forward-thinking, which is what you'd expect from a city that once selected once elected, <laughs> once elected, Senator Bernie Sanders as its mayor. So it's no surprise that it recently became the first U.S. city of any decent size to run entirely on renewable electricity. Uh, and there's a photo of solar panels, and the caption says Renewable electricity generation isn't the only way this forward thinking city is addressing climate change, the environment, and sustainability. Burlington Electric Department has aggressive energy efficiency programs and boasts that it uses less electricity now than it did in 1989. Photo credit Burlington Electric Department. Climate change is the biggest problem we face, maybe the biggest problem we've ever faced. University of Vermont environmental science professor Taylor Ricketts told NPR, but there's no silver bullet to fix it. It's gonna be a million individual solutions from all over the place. And this is one of Burlington's, right? The city's publicly-owned utility, the Burlington Electric Department, BED, says in its mission statement, BED will continue to be a leader in sustainability by producing power that is, clean and, that is as clean and as locally produced as possible. BED will continue to treat the environment with the utmost respect and will continue to influence decisions and public policy that enhance environmental quality, the use of renewable resources, and the sustainability of Burlington. The city lives up to that mission by acquiring its energy in diverse ways, including biomass, hydro, electric, solar, and wind. Its biggest power generator, generator is hydro, which the city acquires from dams both locally and elsewhere in the region. Its biomass facility, the McNeil Generating Station, provides another 30% in, of its power. It runs on burning wood chips, although it can run on natural gas or oil on an inundru- uninterrupted on in interruptible basis. The wood chips are the residue of the region's logging industry and come primarily from within 60 miles of the city, reducing transportation costs. Wind turbines and solar panels provide another 20 percent of its electricity. In addition. BED says, McNeil is equipped with a series of air quality control devices that limit the particulate stack um, em- emissions to one-tenth the level allowed by Vermont state le- regulation. McNeil's emissions are one one-hundredth of the allowable federal level. The only visible emission from the plant is water vapor during the, co- during the cooler months of the year. Renewable electricity generation isn't the only way this forward-thinking city is addressing climate change, the environment, and sustainability. BED has aggressive energy efficiency programs and boasts that it uses less electricity now than it did in 1989. And despite its small size, Burlington already has nine charging stations for electric vehicles. And contrary to those who insist that renewably-generated electricity is an expensive luxury that only a bunch of fish-loving Vermont hippies will pay for, Ken Nolan of BED told NPR that the switch to renewables was initially driven by economic concerns and will likely save the city $20 million over the next decade. Greenhouse gas reduction is a major thing that we're concerned about and we are always trying to improve on, he said. But in looking at whether to buy renewable power, we really were focused on an economic decision at the time. Our financial analysis at the time indicated to our actually to our surprise that the cheapest long-term financial investment to uh, <laughs> the cheapest long-term financial investment for us with the least amount of risk was to move in this direction. So yay, positive things happening and hopefully it will spread. And going to the last story and then I'll play a song and yeah, we're wrapping up a little bit early today. So, so well, uh, there was, I read the story, I believe a few, <laughs> a few episodes ago, there's a movie called Stonewall out, which totally whitewashes the history and it's just despicable. And a lot of folks who were at Stonewall were like, uh, this didn't happen at all. Why are you doing this? So L- Roland Emmerich was like the director uh, he's openly gay, and he just does not get it. So there have been, it's gotten terrible reviews for a variety of reasons. And this article comes from The Atlantic, which is going to talk a little bit about that in greater detail. And uh, it says, this is written by uh, Spencer Kornhaber, uh, again, from The Atlantic. You can find this at theatlantic.com, The Dark Heart of Stonewall. In the world of Roland Emmerich's a historical drama, LGBT liberation was not merely started by a quote-unquote straight acting white man, which is what he said. He he specifically wanted the, the protagonist to be a straight acting quote-unquote straight acting white man, even though the movement was done by uh, trans women of color and drag queens. Uh, no, no, no. In the movie, it's like a, a straight quote-unquote straight, straight acting. Uh, Cis white man. Okay, great. Um, while white man, it could only have been started... Okay, here we go. I'm going to reread this, going very fast. In the world of Roland Emmerich's historical drama, LGBT liberation was not merely started by a straight-acting white man. It could only have been started by one. And again, this is written by Spencer Kornhaber, and this article came out, uh, I believe, today. Alright, the media has torn down Stonewall with good reason. To make a movie about a pivotal event in LGBT history that was, by most accounts, largely driven by people of color, transgender folks, and drag queens, Roland Emmerich invented a white male protagonist who literally takes a brick out of a black man's hand to start the uprising, now celebrated in annual parades worldwide. It's a classic white messiah yarn that supposedly endorses tolerance, but just ends up confirming one of the most persistent biases against, and often among, LGBT people—the idea that the best queers are the ones who look and act, quote-unquote, normal. In the face of outcry against the film's trailer, the creators of the movie assured the public that the finished product would be more inclusive and truer to life than the marketing made it seem. Now that the full cut has screened, though, it has received some of the savagest reviews of the year, and not just for its politics the film is treacly, tedious, long, and surprisingly confusing. But the most interesting thing about it might be that Emmerich, the screenwriter John Robin Bates, and the star Jeremy Irvine weren't exactly lying when they told people that the movie is more self-aware and diverse than initially expected. There are lots of non-white people on screen. That is not, as it had been called, a case of erasure. It's worse. The protagonist is Danny Winters, Jeremy Irvine, a small-town Midwestern hunk whose family disowns him when he's caught canoodling with another guy on the football team. In in June of 1969, he arrives in New York City. He's been accepted to attend Columbia in the fall, but for the time being, has no plan, no friends, no job, and no lodging. After some time sleeping in the streets, he falls in with Ray, Johnny Beauchamp, a long-haired sometimes-in-drag Latino who leads a crew of homeless queer prostitutes. Though Danny is, as Emmerich has said, straight acting, he adjusts to the gay ruffian lifestyle. He starts making sassy jokes about fashion, his white t-shirt goes gray, he even turns a trick for $25, allowing the movie to contribute to the 2015 collection of sad blowjob faces. But through it all, he still stands apart on the gay hub of Christopher Street because of where he's come from and how he looks. On his first visit to Stonewall Tavern, the menacing bar manager, Ed Murphy, played by Ron Perlman, tells Ray that he'd like to see more guys like Danny coming through, "quote unquote," all-American, clean-cut kids, no gutter trash like you. The attitude is shared apparently by Danny. He shyly refuses to dance with his new friends in wigs and ratty dresses. But when approached by the white, crisply, crispy, crisply, <laughs> white, crisply dressed political activist Trevor, who's queued up a whiter shade of pale on the jukebox maybe in a flash of cinematic self-awareness, he gladly hits the dance floor. Cops raid Stonewall under the pretense that it's illegal to cross-dress or sell alcohol to homosexuals. Danny and Trevor, Jonathan Reese Myers, walk out unmolested, but the others get locked up. The narrative from there, such as it is, has Danny pushed and pulled between the two different queer communities, the poor and marginalized just struggling to survive, and the well-off white people attempting revolution through respectability. The movie often seems to want to sympathize with the streets. At one point, Danny finds Ray curled up, blood caked on his face from being attacked by a John. Biddings are just a fact of life for people like him, he says. When Danny suggests he leave that life, Ray's offended. The difference between us is that I don't have a choice. He's right. Ray has been turning tricks in New York since he was 12, and his only living family members are in jail or other countries. While there's no one one for him to go to help, while there's no one for him to go to for help, no built-in support system, Danny, meanwhile, has been accepted to the Ivy League and is able to get hired at a grocery store. From the disapproval of his family back in Indiana, eventually softens enough for, him, for his mom to send his scholarship papers to Columbia. To boot, the good, white, masculine looks that caught Trevor's eye at the bar end up paying off with the stable place to live. Ray is violently hostile to Danny's relationship with Trevor, whom he calls disdainfully very political. <laughs> oh my gosh. The hostility is never fully explained, and Danny seems to assume it stems from romantic jealousy. But from what really seems to make Ray mad are Trevor's attempts to organize the community, to hold meetings and pass out flyers. The street hustlers simply aren't interested in political change. Ugh, this sounds terrible. The charitable assumption would be that this is because they're too preoccupied with survival. The uncharitable but not unsupported assumption would be that they're just too simple. Ray repeatedly calls himself quote unquote not smart as if the film disagrees with and if the film disagrees with him about that characterization, it never really indicates it. He's savvy enough to navigate violence and poverty, but apparently not enough to think about fighting the conditions that lead to his violence and poverty. But the film doesn't take Trevor's side, either. He takes Danny to a poorly attended meeting. I didn't realize this was going to be a full spoiler alert, but I don't really have an intention of seeing this movie, so here we go. Uh, he takes Danny to a poorly attended meeting with the Mattachine Society leader Frank Kameny, who advocates using suits, ties, and gentle words to persuade the dominant society that gay is good. Coming after the affectionate portrait of the scruffy Christopher Street crew, this viewpoint is meant to seem out of touch or cruel. Danny's only weekly subject objects instead asking for advice on how to become an astronomer, a career path, Kameny says, that is not available to gay people under current law. Irvine does his best to appear enraged by this revelation. Uh, The riot finally erupts after the police raid Stonewall again, and due to conflicts of interest, very shoddily communicated in the script, arrest, then free, the villainous mob-connected owner, Murphy. Uh, The neighborhood mills about watching this injustice take place, murmuring and yelling, but Danny has had a particularly rough night. Trevor cheated on him, and then Murphy kidnapped him to pimp him out. When he grabs a brick from a friend, Trevor objects that violence isn't the way to fight. It's the only way, Danny screams, oh my god, breaking a window in the first act of vandalism of the night, gay power. This is no doubt meant to represent a kind of synthesis. Danny has had a brush with the worst effects of gay oppression on cold sidewalks and dingy flop houses, but he has also become politically activated by the squares and suits. By bridging both worlds, he offers a way for the community to transcend very Heg- Hegelian, very Hollywood, and very queasy, troubling, potentially racist. Remember, Danny escapes the condition of homeless desperation he finds himself in in early in the film explicitly because he is a straight-acting, in quotes, good-looking middle-class white man. He gains political awareness because of those same things. He's even victimized by Murphy because of them. So the movie not only replaces what could have been a more historically accurate instigator with a classic Hollywood pinup guy, it imagines that he's the instigator because he looks like a classic Hollywood pinup guy, and it imagines that the brown cross-dressing poor people who were poor reportedly made up the majority of the Stonewall patrons could not have been. What's weird is, all, is that all along, John Robin Bates's script is very vocal about the idea that race and privilege have real-world effects. At one point, Ray even accuses Danny of having gone slumming for fun. The world of this movie is not colorblind, it's playing with identity and power, but to what end? Emrich has used the Trojan Horse defense to talk about the creation of Danny's character to get straight people to connect to the movie. It needs a conventional star. He has also defended it on a person on personal grounds. As a director, you have to put yourself in your movies. I, and I'm white and gay. Those are not great reasons to contrive a script that places Marsha P. Johnson, the drag queen who many people say began the uprising, in another part of town when the first brick is thrown. But they're at least understandable as concessions to a risk-adverse film industry it would be one thing for the movie to take what other critics have called the forrest gump approach and just have danny be an omnipresent witness to history or perhaps he could have been the en- perhaps he could have been the inexplicably chosen one who just happened to be the kendall-esque like so many chosen ones in movies previously what i can't quite figure out is why the movie would make the white guy hero the leader of the uprising and to make his leadership the direct result of his race, class, and masculine effect. That's so button-pushing, so open to accusations of flat-out white supremacy, that one starts to spin conspiracy theories. Stonewall never feels real. It was shot in Montreal and bathes the entire hokey-looking city in lovely golden hour light for many of the scenes. Maybe, just maybe, this is all meant to be a parody of how Hollywood has time and again rewritten white male saviors into history. Or maybe it's meant to show that privilege is so powerful that the world is more easily changed by those that possess it. The problem with that, though, is that the world, on this point, does not back the idea up. There is no real-life Danny Winters. It's obvious who benefits by pretending otherwise. Or maybe it's just as bad as it looks. The morning after the riot, while there are multiple nights of it, in fact, there appears to be only one in the movie, Ray tells Danny that everything's changed and they can make a life together. Throughout the film, Danny has subtly rebuffed his romantic advances, a fact that many critics have pointed out plays into the worst tendencies of mainstream gay culture today to see the femmes and people of color as undesirable. Now he makes his disgust explicit. I can't love you, Danny says, before adding an explanation so weak the people in my theater broke into laughter. I'm too mad to love anyone right now. A year later, the first gay parade—the <laughs> the first gay pride parade is held uptown. Danny has finished his freshman courses at Columbia and returned home, wearing a swanky city boy jacket and bonding lovingly with his sister and mother. They come to watch the parade where Danny reunites with the Christopher Street kids. Ray is there, but we don't learn what he's been up to. The default assumption would be that he's still broke, prostituting, and getting regularly beaten up. The film doesn't seem to care whether he gets a happy ending. Whew. Wow, and there you have it, a movie that I most likely am not going to see, although I am curious about it. And uh, this is of course very true with a lot of Hollywood movies, and it's a shame that, I mean, having a budget and having time and energy to create a piece of art, not that all movies are necessarily art, they could be art though, they really fucking could be, Um, and to have that kind of come out of it, especially when there are people who are still alive who are there, like Miss Major, who was there, and, I mean, how, how just terrible that is. It's like a slap in the face. Um, just really, ugh. So anyway, at least uh, folks are speaking up about how misrepresentative that, that film is. So perhaps, uh, I don't know, there will be a future where actual historical events are portrayed as they, as they actually happened. I think that would be a pretty great thing. So I think it's time for a protest song as we wrap up. What protest song shall it be? Um, I, I play the Village People a lot, and they're not necessarily known for for, for protesting. But uh, there's that song, "What I Am," which I play a lot on this show. And uh, I don't know. I gotta go, so gonna do this very quickly, and then I'll be back next week. And the first the first thing that's popping up is not a Village People song. It's Will I Am singing that song from Sesame Street. Uh, I, I think it's a different it's a different song. It's definitely a different song. So we'll get the Village People coming up. And then uh, Women's Magazine is off today. But we will be playing an episode, a previous episode. And, uh, yeah, then we'll be back. I'll be back next week here and uh, with some more news and definitely please register to vote if you haven't already in San Francisco. Again, the election is November 3rd, so please, please, please vote. Let's get Mary Lee out of office. There's a lot of folks running who can do a lot better for the city than than he has, and there's also a lot of props, (laughs) a lot of propositions going on. I want to vote yes on F and yes on I for sure, and I'll be reviewing them next week as well. So again, here's some village people with a great song, and uh, I'll see you next week, and have a wonderful week, everybody and take care of each other, and fight the fight. And, uh, yep, here we go. It's coming. The song is coming, uh, Don't See Stonewall, and have a great week. Oh, and I'm still talking because the video is going on, and they're playing Macho Man, which is not the song that I put in, but we're just going to keep it, and perhaps it'll go into the other song and see what happens.
4: depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm gonna guess waffles. (laughs) Yo, that is incorrect. Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby! There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good.
5: Turn on every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities, Tweeka Turner, and Pearl
8: Tees. Are you sick of
0: reading the news? Do you even bother to read the news anymore? Do you need someone to read it to you because it's just so disgusting and depressing? If so, then the weekly review is the show for you. Join Roman Reimer as Roman reads the news, whether it be LGBTQ issues, cannabis legalization, prison abolition, police brutality, or many other issues that sometimes the media just doesn't feel the need to cover. Listen in, Fridays at Noon, Mutiny Radio. Romans also joined by activists, community organizers. Um, we
6: also have the Amy theme. Farrah Weiss and broke-ass Stuart Shuffman, but you'll see, only see Stuart Shuffman on the ballot. They won't <laughs> let him put broke-ass, but that's okay. <laughs> that's, we understand, we understand.
9: I actually asked them, when they said uh, your profession, what is it, I said, can I put motherfucking hustler? And they, they said No. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Censorship. <laughs> so this is Mutiny Radio, so we're not about censorship. Here. <laughs> so thank you all for being here. I also want to introduce my co-producer for today's show, um, Roman Raymer, the ho- who is the weekly host of the Weekly Review here at Mutiny Radio from 12 to 2 PM. Um, so if you missed the last hour, he had a great conversation with these three candidates. And you'll be able to download that podcast from mutinyradio.fm. Um, and so he's in the booth operating the board while I'm out here in the gallery space to moderate this panel. Um, a little bit about me, and then I'll explain how we'd like this to work today. So uh, my name is Valerie Ibera. I am a fifth-generation San Franciscan. Hmm. And I also have a bachelor's degree in international relations, uh, political science from UC Santa Barbara. And we have two uh, other UC graduates here UC Santa Cruz, um, but today I'm kind of hearkening back to high school where I got an early start moderating debates as part of JSA, which is the Junior Statesman of America. Uh, I was a scholarship student at St. Ignatius College Preparatory High School here in San Francisco, so you could say my back in my background I, is one of privilege, if not means. Um, But, that said, as your moderator today, I'm not here to put forward any specific political agenda, but I am interested in free speech and the political process and inclusive democracy. So informing the public and letting people make informed choices. So that is why it is my great service to welcome these three candidates here and the members of the public to Mutiny Radio here today. Uh, Of course, the only notable bias is that these are only three of the six candidates who are running for mayor. Hmm. Um, But these three have reached out to this community here in the Mission District um, and, and at Mutiny Radio and have formed an interesting coalition which I'll ask them to address shortly in just a few minutes. So this is how we'd like it to work. I'll let the candidates kind of introduce themselves and then we'll talk a little bit about ranked choice voting and what it means in this mayoral election. And then we'll take the first audience question. So you can see that there's a microphone set up over on the other side of the room. Um, So feel free to either line up or just raise your hand or let me know that you wanna ask a question and uh, you can wait and uh, ask your question over there. Um, but we also have uh, some questions that people wrote in in advance. So we're going to kind of alternate between write-in questions and live questions from the people who are here today. So thank you all for being here. Um, we're going to try to do cover as much as we can in the next about 40, 45 minutes. So I do ask that we try to keep both the questions and the responses brief but meaningful. So without further ado, uh, Amy Fairweiss, Francisco Herrera, and Stuart Shuffman, would you each take about two or three minutes to introduce yourself and tell us about your campaign for mayor of San Francisco, and also feel free to mention any official ador- endorsements that you've received.
10: Great. My name is Amy Fairweiss. I was born in Berkeley, raised in San Jose. Both my parents are, uh, you know, were raised in poverty, but they got great jobs working in unions. And I was the first generation of my family to go to college. And really, my focus isn't on upward mobility; it's on impact ability because I want to have impact on the system. And I think that, you know, the American dream thus far has been poised as, you know, how to succeed in the system. And you know, my great grandparents came here on one side from persecution, from Hungary because they were Jewish and they moved to the United States. And so they were just trying to survive the system. Um, My grandparents and my parents were trying to succeed in the system. And then I have the ability through the critical thinking skills that I learned in college to be able to impact the system with the values that we have. And I went to UC Santa Cruz, as was mentioned. And while I was there, it wasn't enough for me to learn about race, class, and gender theory, which I really enjoyed, but I wanted to put it into action right away. And this gives you a sense of who I am. I did three independent studies while I was at UC Santa Cruz and won college commendations for them, one working at Planned Parenthood doing outreach and education internship, one uh, starting a media literacy program at the Boys and Girls Club, and one working with uh, low income parents and trying to figure out how we can support uh, preschool affordability for uh, low income families. And then I, I did a lot of work in social service and direct service, education, research, public speaking. I moved to San Francisco in 2007 working in a company um, that was focused on sustainability strategy and I almost didn't take the job when I found out we'd be working with Walmart employees and executives around sustainability I didn't want to be part of a greenwashing effort but we actually had huge impact talking about the triple bottom line to employees which is people, planet, and equitable profit and then uh, went back to San Francisco State for a master's degree in organizational development while I was there started a program to connect nonprofit students in the graduate program with support for community-based organizations. It's now being offered for the third time this fall, so I initiated that. And then started a nonprofit called Neighbors Developing Divisadero in 2011. That's how I got my start in local politics. Because I was tired of just saying no and pushing back against development that was exclusive and profit-driven and displacing and part of gentrification. I wanted to say yes in my backyard to inclusive, culturally enriching and sustainable development which I've devoted my life to over the last four years. Thank you Amy Weiss.
7: Francisco. Okay well my name is Francisco Herrera I've um, lived in here in San Francisco almost about 30 years raised my kids actually one block from here Uh, unfortunately also seen a lot of art community kids die in these blocks because of lack of responsibility of of uh, our city government and uh, and the lack of co- appropriate funding, uh, in that process of working in the community with parents in schools, with day laborers, with cooperatives uh, of women engaging themselves, uh, we've actually been very successful in creating programs that have been funded in the past some that are funded now i'm I'm specifically thinking of a couple of years in the early 2000 where we were actually able to eliminate uh shootings for almost two years due to appropriate funding and correct development work where we were able to fund programs that were directly assisting youth through after school programs through midnight basketball through a uh, Real Alternatives Program van that went straight out to points of uh, violence. And and so that these experiences have really taught me that, that the point of government really is citizen participation and really is to create a base of citizen participation. So along with the campaign of running, and I call it walking, for mayor instead of running, mm-hmm. and, and very specifically for the reason that when you walk, you actually feel with people, you actually smell, you actually sense the aromas, the relations are real, um, and, and you create human connection and, and collaboration uh, as opposed to running like a chicken with your head cut off, which is what happens when investors take over City Hall uh, as we're seeing today. And so this campaign to to walk for mayor of San Francisco is based on creating the points of in common, like Diamond Dave says, pointing the, finding the points in common that have to do with affordability, with affording not just the rent, but healthy access to healthy food, access to quality education, access to good health, and creating health through the culture, through the arts and culture, through a living wage, through benefits, through making labor and workers have the right to organize to to really negotiate for good wages and those kinds of issues that we, the communities, are very interested in, as opposed to what investors are here to do, which is basically make a buck, right? And so this is the, the gist of our campaign. I'm originally from the border to our east of San Diego, Calexico, a compound word, Cal for California, Exico for Mexico, and on the Mexican side is Mexicali, which is the capital city of Baja California. A city of a million and a half, two, almost two million people. And so I'm here to work so that the wisdom of our communities come to City Hall and we can build a city together. Enjoy.
9: All right. <laughs> Thank, you. Gracias, gracias.
6: Thank you, Francisco Herrera. And now, Stuart Shuffman.
9: Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Shuffman. I go by Bro Gas Stuart. Uh, I've done a lot of things. and have been a lot of different people. Um, I'm an entertainer, I guess, at heart. I'm a, I've been a travel writer for a decade, kind of paid to travel around the world and write about it. Um, I'm a TV host. I did that for a while. Um, and I'm now a candidate for mayor, and it all kind of builds to this point. Um, part of what I am really, amongst all those things, is I am a people person. I understand people in a way that I don't, can't even describe because I, I just, it's a sixth sense, I read people in a way that um, gives me a certain amount of access to the city where I walk into a place and I know the bus boy, but I also know the owner and the guy who invested in the place. <laughs> and so through that I understand what San Franciscans are and, and what they want and who they are because I know all, all aspects of it. Uh, I also grew up on the border and I also went to Santa Cruz. Uh, so I'm I'm a Californian. Um, Slowly make my way up the coast, I guess. Uh, in Santa Cruz, I. Learned-